here is the most stupendous event in history. The immortal God dying for incorrigible enemies. Now, how does an immortal God die? But the great mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh. There's the wisdom of God in the sending of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of God made flesh so that he could die. And he died for incorrigible enemies. No amount of kindness shown to a man in his life has ever caused a man to repent of his sins and to run for mercy to the Lord Jesus Christ. He sends his sunshine and his rain every day. He fills men's hearts with fruitful seasons and much gladness, but they never repent. They're incorrigible rebels. They're enemies. And he died for enemies to magnify his love. Why did the blessed God do this? In order to display the greatness and glory of his grace and his kindness in Christ Jesus. He did not die because he felt sorry for sinful men. He allowed sinful men to come into existence by his predestinating purpose in the Garden of Eden. He allowed that and he sent Jesus Christ and he took him to the cross of Calvary to display how incredibly forgiving and loving he could be to send his only begotten son to die for enemies. You would never die for your enemy. There is scarcely a man, the Bible tells us, that would die for a righteous man, and only a very few that would die for a friend. And most of them only die by instinct in certain situations where they are trained to do it. The Lord Jesus Christ spent 33 and a half years going toward a death of which he had full knowledge before he ever got there. And all of it was to display to the universe that God has love in a measure that we can't even approach. And he showed it and displayed it to the entire universe of men and angels by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for enemies. The angels desire to look into it. He never sent one for them. The angels that sinned are reserved in chains unto everlasting punishment. We delighted in his life this morning. And in his life, we saw the imputation of righteousness. He lived a perfectly righteous life for each of us. And when we stand before God, the blessed God will see us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He will see us with the blood of Christ upon us. We will be perfectly righteous before him because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed or charged or accounted to us. Tonight, we delight in his death because it shows the imputation of sin. Because all of your sins and all of my sins were imputed, they were charged, they were reckoned, they were accounted to Jesus Christ so that when he died, it was as if we had died for our sins because he died in our place. Here we see sin as we should see it. Here we should see what justice calls for us to suffer eternally. What we see in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we should see it thoroughly, is what justice 
that is the holy nature of God, would extract from each of us were it not for the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look at the pain and sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you can multiply that out into eternity, that is what we all would give in payment for our sins if it were not for the Lord Jesus Christ. And those for whom he did not die and those that shall die themselves for their own sins, they will have extracted from them the suffering that we're about to take a little peek at in the word of God. I hope that you enjoyed singing he could have called 10,000 angels. The words of our Lord Jesus were to Peter after he had pulled his sword and chopped off the ear of the high priest servant. He said, put up your sword, Peter. Don't you know that I could not right now ask my father for 12 legions of angels and I would have them immediately? One angel could have taken care of Jerusalem with all of its Jews, high priests, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Roman garrisons. Twelve legions, I can't imagine. Neither can you. It was a big number. It's bigger than singing 10,000. A legion used to be 6,000, and 12 legions would be 72,000 angels coming to rescue the beloved of heaven. And they would have come with a vengeance if Jesus Christ had cried for them. And oh, the devil wanted to see him cry for them. He wanted to see an all-out war in the angelic realm to keep our Savior from going to the cross. But the Lord Jesus Christ went meekly as a lamb and did not call for the deliverance that you and I would have called for in one second of time. I would have called for it before I ever got to Gethsemane, knowing what was coming and what they were going to try to do to me. And that's why he is God and he has grace and your pastor has none in comparison. And neither do you. None of us do. This is a display of love that is hard to even describe. We have the Lord's Supper this evening. Do you know what the purpose of this is? To remember. Thank you, brother. To remember his death till he comes. The Christian religion is not complicated nor sophisticated. It is called the simplicity of the gospel. The simplicity of the good news of what Jesus Christ did for us. All we need to do for the next few minutes is remember some of the things he did for us, just to remember them. He wants us to remember his death till he comes, because this is the glorious payment for our sins. We want to delight in it. We want to be thankful for it. We want to be humbled by it. We want to be provoked to live worthy of it. And may it drive us out of this place more convicted than ever to live for the Lord Jesus Christ without shame and be willing to deny ourselves the few little pet sins that so easily distract and attract us when he was willing to deny himself to die for enemies. We are simply living for one who loves us. Why can't we do it? By the grace of God, we can. And let's make sure that we do. But let's remember his death till he comes. Will you remember it with me? Now, I've only got a few minutes. You were supposed to have read John 18 and 19 last night if you chose those chapters. I had pleasure in that little conference room, in that little meeting room, down there at the Tiger River Correctional Institution going over John 18, John 19, 
and answering all his questions that popped up in those two chapters and then going to Isaiah 53 to tell him why Jesus Christ went through all that because it's not plainly stated in John 18 or 19 but it sure is in Isaiah 53 right. it pleased the Lord to bruise him for our transgressions incredible all we like sheep has gone astray do you think the two of us could agree on that in that place we have turned everyone to his own way. Could we agree on that? Can we all agree on it tonight? Yep. And he hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is the doctrine of imputation. Don't be scared by that word imputation. That's when you charge something to the account of another person. And our sins were put to the account of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a shame that in this frivolous age that no one knows what the doctrine of imputation was common knowledge in days gone by we live in an ignorant time I have before tried to break down the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ to make it easier for you to grasp mentally into four categories because I believe they occurred in four categories and we often get lost in one of them and don't see the other three and I hope that we can see all four in the few minutes that we have tonight I will turn you to a couple of scriptures in a minute, but let me begin by reminding you of what you're most familiar with, and that is his physical sufferings at the hands of the Romans. Remember these things with me. He asks us to. He was scourged by the Romans who were known for their efficient and cruel punishments. Scourged. A wooden handle holding nine leather thongs, oftentimes with bits of metal and stone tied into those leather thongs that a man could grip with both hands and rip the back of another person wide open. Oftentimes the internal organs would be seen heaving after the flesh had been removed from the back, the scourging by the Romans. These were not soldiers like you see today there's, there were no females serving in the Roman army. These were men that had been drafted from all over the, the known world. They weren't Jews. They were hardened soldiers that lived a hardened life that took that scourge and scourged the Son of God and ripped him, his back, wide open so that blood was pouring from him. At the same time, they put a crown of thorns. They made it mocking him as a king and put it upon his head and took a stick and beat those crowns down into his head so that blood was running down over his face and his upper body and his back was wide open. He had his beard plucked off his face. To find that out, you have to read Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6. But he had his beard plucked off his face. I know that all of you, when your razor simply snags one or two, give quite a wince of pain yourself. Can you imagine having the beard plucked off your face? They beat him in the face with their hands and fists by Roman soldiers. And they mocked him while they did it to tell them who had done it. He knew who had done it. He knew their parents, their grandparents, and their descendants. And he could have cursed them all but he took it meekly. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. Then Pilate brings him out, thinking that such punishment 
should be sufficient for these bloodthirsty Jews. He brings Jesus out arrayed in a purple robe, a crown of thorns on his head, his back ripped wide open, his face had been pummeled, and said, Behold the man. Look what I've done to him. Isn't that enough? And what did that bloodthirsty crowd cry for? Crucify him. No mercy from his own nation. Pilate tried diligently, if you read John 18 and 19, to let him go. He knew he was an innocent man. He knew it was for envy the Jews had brought him. But for political purposes, when they pulled their ace and said, you're not being faithful to Caesar if you let a man live who has claimed to be king, he washed his hands and said, crucify him. He was a troubled man. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. Pilate said several times, I find no fault in him at all. Herod has found no fault in him. Their witnesses and testimonies would not agree together. He knew that he was innocent. His wife had come to him, come to him during those proceedings and said, have nothing to do with this man. This night I have had a horrible dream because of him. The Lord speaking to her. He had all of this testimony coming to bear on him. He hears that Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews, and he asks him about it. And Jesus said, you got it. You bet I'm the king. And for this purpose I came into this world to bear witness of the truth. But the poor man didn't even know there was such a thing as truth. But Jesus Christ, after having suffered that way, the man who healed the sick, who opened the eyes of the blind, who caused the lame to walk, who fed multitudes, who never took a dime, who never promoted himself, who only did righteousness. That man was scourged, had a crown of thorns, his beard plucked off, and his face beaten by Roman soldiers. And we've only got started because now Pilate says crucify him to satisfy that bloodthirsty generation of the Jewish nation. And they can scream all they want today. They can hate the movie that's about to come out by Mel Gibson, and I'm not promoting it right now. I'm just saying the Anti-Defamation League of those people can come out and say all they want to and try to divert that guilt for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ anywhere they wish, but they are the guilty ones. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said to Pilate, Him that delivered me to thee has the greater sin. And don't you forget that. Pilate was doing his job. Pilate was a pitiful politician. Pilate compromised justice where justice should have been honored. But Pilate, Jesus recognized the difference between Pilate and Caiaphas. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever read any of their tripe. They're the best at brainwashing, and they've brainwashed much of our nation to think they're God's chosen people. I'll tell you about God's chosen people. They're right here tonight. Amen. They're Gentiles that have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Those are the people of God. That is the Israel of God. Those are the true Jews. It is the synagogue of Satan that rose up together to have him crucified, and that's what Jesus calls it, the synagogue of Satan, in the second and third chapters of Revelation. Amen. They stripped him of his garments and took him out in public naked. He was kept up all night without sleep for torture and the fraudulent trials that he was rushed to one after another. Do you realize he was first of all taken to Annas, 
then to Caiaphas, then to Pilate, then to Herod, then back to Pilate, all during the night, kept up all night long, so he'd have been horribly weakened by such an, a difficult time after he had spent the first half of the evening in prayer. He was forced to carry his own cross after being physically abused all night. He had nails driven through his hands and feet into the wooden cross. I mean, just trying to think about it and to remember it. And that's what we're doing. We want to humble ourselves before a friend that you and I have. A friend that did this for us. And God was satisfied with it. But he was laid out on that block of wood. And nails were driven through the soft parts of his hand and through his feet. And by those means only was his body weight suspended on that cross as it was dropped down into its hole and he was put up naked in front of all as a spectacle. Blood pouring out of his back, pouring down over his face. His face already, do you know what the Bible says? Marred beyond any man's. He was extremely thirsty from all those hours of trial, from all the loss of blood and fluids on the cross. The Bible tells us that he thirsted, and he said that he thirsted. He was fully conscious of the pain because when they offered him the sedative, when he approached the cross, he refused it. He had already purposed in his heart that he would drink the dregs of the cup of the wrath of Almighty God for us. He refused the sedative that would slightly dull the pain to keep the person alive up there. He refused it. That is our Savior. He didn't go barely to the cross. He didn't go guzzling a sedative. He went denying a sedative. The Lord looked, and when there was no intercessor found, his own arm brought salvation. That's what my Bible tells me. And when his own arm brought salvation, it was better than any of you or me or any combination of us could have ever done. The Lord Jesus Christ drank the dregs of the cup of the wine, of the wine press, of the wrath of Almighty God. These are his physical sufferings. They're horrific. But they're not the main way that he suffered. You can raise examples from history of men who have suffered similar things physically. But this was just the start. You have never yet shed blood in your resistance to sin. And he wants to remind you of that in Hebrews chapter 12 and about verse 3. Never. So even though this part, I'm saying, is the least of the troubles he endured that night, it's still greater than you have ever bore against sin. I come now to the second section. The second section is what I call the non-physical punishment that he took that is not directly related to his body, but related to his soul and spirit. What we would call the emotional torment that he went through, the psychological damage that he went through in suffering the loss of things that would pain us enormously that was beyond the physical suffering. I want you to look in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 26 because the first point I want to make is he knew about this all along. 
His whole life, he knew this was coming. People have suffered enormous pain when it's happened accidentally. They've been in an automobile accident or something happened to them in the military. You don't have time to think about it. The way that I've tried to express this to you in a very pitiful way is when you know there is a dip in the road that you are about to go over, you sense, you sense it coming and you tighten up and, the, and it's aggravated by the fact that you're looking for it and trying to avoid it. When you know something is coming and you can think about it, it makes it all that much more dreadful, especially when you know it thoroughly in detail. And he knew it thoroughly in detail what he was going to endure. Here's Matthew 26, and this can be found in several places in our Bibles. Verse 1, it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. See, Jesus knew about his betrayal, and he knew about his crucifixion. There are places in our New Testaments where it tells us he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 9, his whole life was to move toward that cross. He knew what was coming, and he went there willingly. When you were reading John 18 and 19 last night, were you not taken back by the fact that when that angry mob came into the Garden of Gethsemane, he went to them? He went to them. He went to them and said, Whom seek ye? Who are you looking for in here? He went to them. I'd have been out the back door of that garden. So would you. We run when the going gets tough. He went to them. We might as well add in what else he did. He said, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And they all fell backward to the ground. But do you know how blind a man can be when God has closed his eyes? You can fall backward to the ground under enormous power that you have never met before in your life and still get up and try to kill the man from whom that came. The Lord Jesus of Nazareth, my Savior and your Savior, our brother, who would worship with us tonight if he were not on the throne of David forever and whom we will worship with soon and who is here by his spirit said I am he they fell backward to the ground and he said who was that that you were looking for I said that I am he why didn't you take me glorious in the midst of all that he was still reminding them who he was He knew about it his whole life. At the Last Supper, when he was looking for some comfort, he said, one of you will betray me. None of them could figure out who was going to betray him. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if 11 of them had picked up the 12th and thrown him out the window? That wasn't going to happen because the word of God wouldn't have been fulfilled. But that hypocrite was so wicked and so deceitful that even the other 11 could not figure out who it was. And so there he was alone in his knowledge of who was going to betray him, and no one else could commiserate with him. Every single one of you know what I'm talking about. When you have friends that can commiserate with you in the pain that you are suffering of any sort, it is very comforting to know that someone else is there to go through it with you and that they understand he had no one. When we just sang that song, 
that said he did it all alone, he did it all alone. There was no Savior found for us except the Lord Jesus Christ. Three and a half years of time with those apostles didn't do them a bit of good as far as making them into a Savior. It may have given them some preparation to be apostles, but it certainly didn't make them a Savior. The Lord Jesus did it himself. Amen. He asked his disciples to watch and to pray with him. To watch. Do you know why? Because he knew who was being gathered together in the city of Jerusalem and were banding themselves together and committing themselves as to what they were going to do and were entering the garden at that very time. He says, watch and pray. And they fall asleep three times. And while he's going through the most earnest prayers of his entire life, sweating as it were great drops of blood, he looks up and comes back to his trusted three, the three that he took to the Mount of Transfiguration when he was transfigured and glorified before them, and they're sound asleep three times. How would that affect you? If you went to the ones dearest in your life looking for comfort and you found them sleeping in your deepest hour of need, when you specifically asked them, when you had just spent an intimate evening with them, instituting the Last Supper, telling them what's going to happen, and washing their feet, they cannot stay awake with you. I am asking you to remember that he was totally deserted by all his friends. Peter had promised him he would go to the death with him. And he deserts him and denies him. Do you know how great it is when you're in trouble to have someone else stand up with you and say, I'm with him. Whatever you do to him, you're going to have to do to me as well. You know, those are wonderful statements that great friends make to each other. They stand back to back. You watch my back and I'll watch yours. Peter said he would do that, and Peter didn't do that. Peter denied him three times. You all know that. He didn't tell me to tell you something new. He told me to tell you something old and for you to remember it. Will you remember it tonight? One of his closest friends, whom he had befriended for three and a half years, betrayed him with a sarcastic, hypocritical kiss for 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave. You would think, the, you would think that the disciples would have had as much character as a Secret Service agent. Men of the Secret Service are trained and are willing they have been in past generations, to cast themselves in the line of fire to protect a president. His disciples, being with the Lord of glory, ran away. So eager were they to run away that one of them, his cloak being grabbed, disappeared naked. That's how eager they were to disappear. He was forsaken by all of his followers in his great hour of need. He was ridiculed and mocked and tortured about his true identity with clear evidence available. There was clear evidence that this man had performed numerous miracles. Why didn't anyone stand up and say, and do you know who was standing there? Men like Nicodemus, men like Joseph of Arimathea, men who could have stood up and said, I just want to remind you of what he did on such and such a date and what he did on such and such a date. But no one recalled any of his miracles all the goodness, all the kindness, all the power, all the glory, all the humility, none of it was brought forth at his trial. His trial was entirely one-sided. 
totally unappreciated for three and a half years of good that he had done. Humiliated, mocked as a king, given a, a reed, a stick as a scepter, a crown of thorns as a crown, a piece of purple as a robe, and mocked as king, though he was a king. He was the king, the king of kings. He was dared by wicked and presumptuous men to prophesy who it was that had just hit him in the face. He could have told them where he was going to send them in the next life. He did not. He could have destroyed them with a thought, but he did not. But he was being mocked. When you're mocked, don't you want to fight back? When you're mocked and you're able to fight back, don't you want to fight back? When you're being mocked and you are infinitely superior to the person mocking you, don't you want to fight back? Our Lord Jesus Christ did not at all. He went as a sheep, goes before her shears. He was dumb with silence. He opened not his mouth. Pilate could see all the arguments being heaped up that didn't make sense, that didn't agree among themselves, all on one side. And he'd look over at Jesus, silently standing there. He'd look back over and this rabble crowd, rabble-rousing crowd, screaming all of their insults and arguments against him and falsifying, falsifying testimony and not agreeing among themselves. And he'd keep looking at Jesus. Not a word. He didn't open his mouth and say, can I remind you of this? But what about that? Is there anyone here that can testify to me doing such and such? Not a word. It was all one-sided. And he took it all and did not respond. He would have been tempted to revenge with those 12 legions of angels, but he didn't. You would have. He didn't. He was rejected by his own nation for a Roman oppressor. His own people betrayed him into the hands of a foreign power. He was ridiculed as an imposter that couldn't possibly be known or helped by God. And God was his father. He trusted in God. Let him call upon God then if he trusted in God so much. Let God deliver him. Let's see if God can bring him down from the cross. God was his father. He was God in the flesh, and he took that. He was sacrificed in order to free Barabbas. What a disgusting exchange. A robber exchanged for the Lord Jesus Christ because they wanted the blood of Jesus. They didn't care about Barabbas. Come out and rob the bank again. Come out and rob whatever you robbed the first time and do it again. They didn't care. They wanted the blood of Jesus. But he was exchanged for a robber. How humiliating. He was slandered by many false witnesses who lied against him rather than accepting the truth that he told his whole life. He was despised with spit in his face, though he had sent sunshine and rain and fruitful seasons into their hearts his whole life. Two previous enemies, Pilate and Herod, become friends because he was the mutual object of their judgment on behalf of the Jews. 
He was deserted by the governor who knew that Jesus was innocent. Can you imagine having the man sitting there in authority who says to you, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you and I have the power to release you? But that power was abused that night because it wasn't used to defend justice. It wasn't used for righteousness. It wasn't used for integrity or equity. But there the man in an office that he had created, the office of a civil magistrate, used the power that he had given him and the life and training and all of the blessing in his life to providentially bring him to that spot. That man deserted him when he needed him against that mob. There was one man there, Pilate, and he was deserted. Think, think about the continual loss, loss, loss in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that night from his disciples leaving to Peter denying to Pilate going over and washing his hands, knowing that this was an innocent man he was now going to condemn to death. And the Lord Jesus Christ was that innocent man and no one would intercede for him. He gets on the cross and the two thieves rail on him. Can you imagine that? A thief opening his mouth against the Lord Jesus Christ. Men that should have been commiserating with him at the pain they were going through. Instead, they're blaspheming him just like the crowd below. The land goes dark for three hours. Seven minutes into the darkness, does anyone cry out, this must be the Son of God and come and rescue him? How in the world can you continue crucifying a man that is totally innocent when the lights go out? And I don't mean inside, I mean outside. No one came. He was shamed and tortured to suffer and die naked before women, friends, and his mother. He was humiliated by the Lord of glory being crucified between two common thieves. He was suffering for those not who loved him, but for enemies that hated him. What an enormous torment of soul. You know, sometimes we are able to dig down deep and do something special for someone because we know they love us. He dug down deep and did what he did for those who hated him. You've never done anything like it. No man has suffered such non-physical pain and suffering in such a short period of time. No man who deserved human support has suffered such a total loss of human support as the Lord Jesus Christ did. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. We have seen that Jesus, and we have remembered tonight, that Jesus suffered enormous suffering physically in his body on the cross, before the cross. Then he suffered the non-physical aspects of the emotional loss of all friends, the betrayal and the deceit and the wickedness all around him with no one remembering or recognizing or willing to state a single good thing about him. His trusted disciple Peter denying him three times, another disciple betraying him for 30 pieces of silver. Those are what I call the non-physical, the non-body related sufferings that he went through of a spiritual sort related to other men, a psychological sort, an emotional loss that Jesus went through. 
We come now to something that is entirely out of our sight, but was far more horrendous to him than anything men could do to him. And that was the devils of hell unleashed against the Lord Jesus Christ. And that you cannot see unless you read the word of God carefully. And then you can see it in all of its horror. I turned you to Luke chapter 4 and verse 13 because it tells us there. At the end of that temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, it says, And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. He was not gone. He was just gone for a little while. We are ignorant of the great conflict that takes place in a spirit realm that is out of our sight. We are very limited creatures. If we can't touch it, if we can't see it, taste it, hear it, or smell it, we have a hard time believing it even exists. But there is a spirit realm of spirits that are as, they're more real than we are. Men have only been here for 6,000 years. They've been here since God created them before that. I don't even know how to explain that to you. They are very real. We just do not see them. They do not die in 70 short years like we do. They don't have to eat three squares a day to, to have strength. They are the angelic realm. And there are fallen angels and there are holy angels. The elect angels of God that he preserved and kept from sinning against him. But he unleashed the most organized and efficient and cruel, hostile force ever in the universe against the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord God did. We cannot see them, but that devil that tempted the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness was assaulting that cross, trying to break down the Lord Jesus Christ to call for rescue, to lose faith, to deny his father, to deny us. Because, brethren, all he had to do was deny us, and he could have lived forever. Do you understand that? And what are we? Less than nothing. Remember, I have taught you. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And I want to tell you something. That night, Jesus wasn't really wrestling against flesh and blood either. He was wrestling against something far more powerful than that. Spiritual wickedness in high places. And that didn't mean Pilate or Caesar. That meant the high places of the organizational chart of the devil and his angels. He wrestled against them. We do not respect Satan enough when God looses him. Look what he could do to Job in a short matter of time when the Lord said, okay, he's all yours. Look at what Satan did to Job. To all of his possessions, to all of his family, to his whole physical body, and to his own wife and the way she dealt with him, how long did it take until Job had lost his faith? Moments. That was unleashed against the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus had already told Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. That is what Satan was capable of doing against Peter, just sifting him like wheat. Look what he did. Just a few hours, maybe four hours after saying, Lord, I'll die with you. He was denying Jesus three times to a little handmaiden. Satan's demonic host is the most unified and efficient hostile force in the universe. They're called the principalities and powers of the Bible because they're all organized very efficiently. Jesus himself said, 
if Satan be divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? Because Jesus knew that the angels understand authority when men don't. They all hold rank, and they all seek one purpose, and that is to serve their master, who is Satan himself, who cannot stand the Lord Jesus Christ, because here's the deal. He was destroyed by a man. He came into the Garden of Eden and took our race down by seducing our first mother, who seduced our first father. But God in that garden said to him, not to Adam and not to Eve, said to him, this woman is going to have a male seed that is going to bruise your head. I cannot preach to you the whole New Testament, but I hope that you will remember Revelation chapter 12 that says as soon as the woman brought forth the man-child, he sought to devour that man-child. And how did he devour him? By using Herod, a wicked king, because behind every president and behind every king, there are spirits, brethren. Do you remember when we studied the book of Daniel? The prince of Persia and the prince of Grecia, and those were not talking about men. Those were talking about devils that motivated the men that ruled those nations. And you can read about them in Daniel chapter 10. The devil motivated Herod to kill all all the boys in the Bethlehem area below two years of age to try to get rid of the Lord Jesus Christ. Blood was spilt, and the mothers of Bethlehem, Judea, cried out in anguish and horror at the babies being taken from their arms and from their breasts and dashed and killed by Roman soldiers because that was a devilish desire to get rid of the Son of God. We cannot forget this. He wants us to remember his death until he comes. Look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 22 about this conflict that he was having. Luke 22. I fear that we forget this. Do all of you know the power and the tempting power of sin? Each of us may have different sins that afflict us differently, but each of you have them. And how powerful they are? You know how powerful they can make you moody? You can hardly resist them? Well, just take all that and multiply it a thousandfold and unleash it against the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil brought his best, his best game against the Lord Jesus Christ at that time to destroy him because at that cross was going to be, was the crux of the whole universe. Who was going to win, God or Satan? And the Lord Jesus Christ was the champion that God had put the burden upon to fight for us. And brethren, he could have denied us and left that place. But he stayed there for us and for the glory of God. Luke 22, verse 53. Jesus told those in the Garden of Gethsemane, When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Do you know what he's saying right there? The power of darkness has been let go. I have been protected for three and a half years. He could walk through a crowd of men that wanted to kill him, and they could not touch him. No, I don't believe in force fields or any ridiculous statements like that from science fiction nonsense. But no man could touch the Lord Jesus Christ when it wasn't the time for the power of darkness yet. But when God pulled that hedge away from the Lord Jesus Christ, they could take him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Satan had free access to him. Look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14. 
about this same matter. Verse 30, he tells his disciples, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh, and hath nothing in me. No goodness for the Lord Jesus Christ, the prince of this world, was coming. Jesus knew what he was about to undergo. Remember, John 14 is just a couple of hours before the Garden of Gethsemane. The prince of the world was coming after him. That's the devil himself to assault our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the time for Satan to be cast out. Satan had been thrown out of his office in heaven long before. The Bible tells us that. He was cast down out of heaven in his office, but he still could come back from time to time and accuse the brethren before God Almighty. He was there when the angels came before God in the time of Job. Job chapter 1 tells us that. Satan was there among them. And he had to answer to the Lord. When the Lord asks a question, even Satan answers. Where have you been? I've been wandering to and fro in the earth. What have you been doing? Have you considered my servant Job? I want you to remember that he had that kind of access into the presence of God. But there was an event coming right now that Jesus spoke of in John chapter 12 and verse 31. Now is the judgment of the prince of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. He was going to be cast out of heaven forever. He would never be able to come before God again and accuse any of us because the blood of Jesus Christ had covered all our sins and there is nothing left to accuse us of. And it tells us that in Revelation chapter 12 that now is the accuser of our brethren cast down. And when did that occur? When Jesus rose up into heaven at his ascension. There was no longer, and he took the book out of the hand of him that sat in the throne. There was no longer anything that could be charged against us. Satan knew all that was coming. And what he had to do to stop it was to keep Jesus from dying on the cross willingly. And so he's assaulting him to break down his faith in God. He's assaulting him to deny us. He's assaulting him to call on the angels to deliver him. You don't have to go through this. You can imagine. You saw in Luke chapter 4 the three great temptations he brought him in that place. You can imagine all the temptations that he was bringing him while he went to the cross. If we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, I hope that you'll remember that Jesus Christ did, rest, did not wrestle against flesh and blood either. That was not the main aspect of the agony and difficulty of his crucifixion, but it was against the devil himself. The devil knew that Jesus Christ was manifested in this world to destroy the works of the devil. That is why every time he appeared and they spoke to him, they said, Art thou come to torment us before our time? They knew that he was the source of their torment. And for the devil to be defeated by a man is the most humiliating thing possible to him. But that is part of the glorious plan of salvation that God arranged. Amen. That a man that was once in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes would destroy the works of the devil. Right. That's why the gospel is said to be the power and the wisdom of God because it's the ultimate of both. Look at Psalm 22 very quickly. Psalm 22, because here we see references made in prophecy to what Jesus Christ endured on the cross of Calvary when it was the power of darkness 
and Satan was coming after him. Look at verse 20 of Psalm 22. I hope all of you know that this psalm is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you know you're able to go to verse 1 and read, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And know that this is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus on the cross. So we come to verse 20, and he's praying. Look at verse 19. But be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword. There's the Romans. My darling from the power of the dog. His darling was his soul that was being assaulted by the power of the dog. There is the singular reference to the devil himself, not dogs, not the barking of the dogs around him, but the singular dog of the devil himself against the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the next verse. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. It was as if there were unicorns all around the cross of Calvary. And who is set forth in the Bible as a roaring lion, walking about seeking whom he may devour? Save me from the lion's mouth. The lion's mouth. That's a singular lion. That is the devil himself. This is what the Bible teaches us. There was a whole conflict going on in the spirit realm that we, have little, we know little about. Do you remember when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? An angel came and comforted him there. If they could just get him to curse God. To beg for mercy. To quit. They do all these things to you, don't they? To quit. To be afraid. To ask for help from some other source than your faith in God. To use his own strength to try to deliver himself. Have you ever used any of these? I raise them just for your consideration. To violate a scriptural promise to retaliate against persecutors, to ask them for help, to speak against the elect. Have you ever spoken against your brothers or sisters? Have you ever been tempted in any of those ways? All of that was multiplied and brought against the Lord Jesus Christ. No man has ever even imagined, let alone endured, the spiritual conflict that I just told you about. Last of all, and most horrific of all, his blessed father, in whom he had delighted his entire life, and whom had been well pleased with him, forsook him, turned his back on him, and unleashed the wrath of God against sin on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a mystery of godliness, because on that cross hung the God-man, but his manhood was assaulted by the wrath of God for our sins. God forsook him. The Bible says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief. God, our Father, put the Lord Jesus Christ to grief. But upheld by his divine nature, he was able to endure and maintain his faith, and he never lost faith even on the cross of Calvary. Do you know what hell is? Hell is a lake of fire, and I do believe that because the Bible teaches, us, teaches that. It tells me that the fire is never quenched, 
and the worm never dies in that place. But I want to tell you the words that are issued when a sentence is proclaimed against a man that he's going to hell. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Depart from me. The most horrifying words in the universe of the Almighty God saying, Depart from me. And God departed from the Lord Jesus Christ so that he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You can read it here, and you can read it in the Gospels. Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring, Psalm 22 and verse 1, he wants us to remember this. No man has ever had a relationship with God like the Lord Jesus Christ did. I have tried to tell you this so that no man could endure the grief that he endured when God forsook him. All of his life, 33 and a half years, he had been in close fellowship with his Father in heaven and was now deserted in his greatest hour of need because he had our sins upon him. Many, many martyrs have died more painful deaths than Roman crucifixion. If you want to debate that, debate it in your own mind. All sorts of cruelties were invented for the last fifth, for the fifth, 1260 years that the Bible speaks about. And many of them suffered that way singing. Because do you know what they had while they were suffering that physical torment and having their body pulled apart? God's presence was with them and Amen. filling them right. with strength and vigor and peace and joy so that they could ask for the forgiveness of their persecutors, so that they could sing songs while they were being pulled apart on the rack. While they're being burned at the stake with green wood, they could sing hymns of praise to God because they were filled with his presence. God's back was not turned on them. God's arms were open to them. And they could, as it were, see him welcoming them into heaven. And they gladly gave up their lives and loved not their lives unto the death, the Bible tells us, because God was with them. But I want to tell you something that the Lord Jesus Christ went to that cross and hung there with God forsaking him. Right. That is an entirely different thing. And so I bring to you and to your remembrance tonight to think upon that. It pleased his heavenly father to bruise him and to put him to grief and to forsake him. He became sin for us. He who had never known sin, all of a sudden had the guilt of your sins. Right. Have you ever felt the guilt of your sin? The haunting guilt that you have violated God and there is no way that you can undo it. He now had that guilt of all of us upon him. The shame of being wrong, of having done wrong. He had it all from all of us in the sight of God. He had our sins upon him. Lonely and condemned for the first and only time in his life. He suffered these things in an infinite quantity and quality for a short period of time. He suffered the equivalent of an eternity in hell for all the elect in a few hours of time. That is the wrath that was poured out upon him because the justice of God would accept nothing less. Yet, brethren, when it came time to give up the ghost, did he still have faith? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What is he saying as he breathes his last breath? Father, 
It's that faith right there. Are there times where we are taken down by a few little circumstances and we wonder if God still loves us? It is so pitiful. He set us such an example. Being forsaken, having all of that happen to him, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he breathed his last, and he stepped by choice out of this life through the curtain of death by total faith in God because it was to that moment that he was forsaken and it was through that curtain of death that he chose by choice he says very plainly my life will not be taken from me I will lay down my life he was dead earlier than anyone believed he should have been dead because he laid down his life that black curtain approached his face And he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he breathed his last and gave his life into the hands of God by sheer faith in his Father and the promises of Holy Scripture. And I want to tell you where his soul went in one nanosecond. His soul was with his Father in heaven, just as he had told the thief a little while earlier, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise that black curtain is going to approach each of us but he hasn't forsaken us do you know what promise we have I will never leave thee now do these words mean anything to you nor forsake thee can you trust that underneath are the everlasting arms when you plunge into the black abyss of death and wake up in the light of his glory by faith because underneath are the everlasting arms of the blessed God and those arms are sure for us because our Savior went first God having forsaken him he plunged into death for us that is what we remember tonight he died that way for you and me And all he asks, how much does this cost you tonight? What does this cost us? All he asks is, remember my death till I come. And he's honored with that. As a favorite, as a wonderful passage of mine says, this is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. This is our Savior. What will you do for him? Can we remember his death right now with a couple of songs and then partake of the bread and the wine? Can we go out from this place purposing to live more for him than we have before? All he asks of us is the living sacrifice of living a life according to his perfect will. May the Lord give us the grace and strength to do it. We have a wonderful example. He is fairer than all the sons of men. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you love him this evening.